Good morning again. Well, it's a privilege to uh, share in the Lord's Supper together. Thank you, praise team and men who served. We appreciate that very much. I am majored in marketing and international business in the College of Business when I uh, went through school a couple of years ago. Um, and I guess it's been 42 years now I've been in some sort of a sales role, which is a long time. Um, unfortunately, when many folks think of sales and salesmen and marketing and advertising, they uh, get a little leery and perhaps skeptical. If you are going in to talk to somebody and you're a buyer and the salesman starts talking, your sensitive discerning antennas and evaluating antennas go up, you're listening with extra attention. Um, oftentimes, and there's these alarms that go off as well, right? I've, I've heard it said that when a salesman all he's got to do is open his mouth and he's lying. I, I take umbrance with comments like that, seeing as I'm in sales. But all too often it's true that marketeers of products or services do less than give you the whole story. They might um, maybe accent or exaggerate the features and benefits of something you're looking for perhaps make it sound maybe slightly better than it really is. You're in the market anyway. I'm, I'm going to appeal to the size, the color, the style, the features, whatever it may be. And I'm going to downplay any weaknesses and shortcomings that my product or service may have relative to alternative competitors. And as you know, some sink even deeper to pure deception, pure lying so they can get your hands, their hands on your money. And well, I've been at it 42 years. I hold a completely different view of sales, a different philosophy of sales, but this is not sales 101, so we'll save that for a conversation sometime in the future if you're interested. Um, however, I do recall being taught that in marketing and sales, the focus is on the need, and we kind of blur, blurred desires, cravings, and needs at that time. Everything was a need. You and I would admit and agree that true, genuine human needs are really minimal. There's not that many that we really have. Most of what, certainly in our affluent economy, we call needs would really be a desire, a want, druther. I really need a Diet Coke. Maybe, probably not in the sense of need. But we were taught that needs are the target. In fact, we were even told that if, if you don't see that, you gotta create the need. I don't know what exactly that meant. I don't know how you create a false need so that I can sell you something that you didn't need in the first place. It's kind of bizarre in my thinking. But that's the constant diet that we get from all media. You know, it's been television commercials for 50 years now. Those are still at it, still millions of dollars spent to make them attractive and lure, lure us, billboards. You know, the new one is, if you don't pay for your app, you're gonna see it every 30 seconds or minute or whatever. You're gonna, advertising has turned to the smartphone in a big way. 
but it's all aimed at appealing to my desires, cravings, and sometimes genuine needs to get me. That's what marketing is all about. What you will hear from the world regarding these offerings is you need dot dot, fill in the blank, the latest, the newest, the fastest, the one with the greatest features. It can be a car, a cell phone, clothes, the right clothes. That's one where they somehow they do generate, at least we think it's a, a false need. I watch over the decades, cuffs, no cuffs, pleats, no pleats, wide ties, narrow ties, short ties, collars this way, collars that way. Who decides all that stuff? When my clothes never wore out and I wasn't in the desert. So, but we're sold that will. It can be the home in the right neighborhood. It can be the status the friends, on and on, incessant, pervasive, everywhere, appealing in some way to my wants and desires. What you won't hear from the world in its messaging is, you know, be satisfied with what you have as your lot, your apportionment, just be satisfied with that. You won't hear that, you know what, that model, that version, this location, that size, it's fine for you. You really don't need to upgrade. Doesn't it meet your needs? You certainly won't hear, be content with what you have. This morning I'd like to take a look in the book of Philippians at what God says about contentment. Now this is, contentment is not counter to ambition, success, drive, prosperity, status, prominence, those things don't preclude contentment. They may throw some hurdles or some difficulties to getting there, but those alone aren't the measure of whether you can experience contentment or not. I just want to be clear that I'm not advocating anti-market capitalism or anything like that. Contentment from a biblical perspective is entirely different. I invite you to open, if you would, to the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians. We're going to spend most of our time there. We'll flip a few pages back and look at a few other passages within the book, within the letter that Paul wrote. So chapter 4 is the last chapter of the book. It's the end of his letter to the believers at Philippi. This is some 10 or 11 years after he had founded the church that he wrote this letter. And this, this end part is really a thank you for the gift. You know, you, somebody gives you a gift, whether it's a birthday or anniversary, whatever it is, and you write a note, hey, I just wanted to thank you for the gift, and you highlight how appreciative you are. That's what this part of the book is. This is Paul acknowledging the gift that the Philippians had gathered together to give to him. And he says something very interesting in this passage. The topic is acknowledging a gift. But he, Paul never uses an opportunity of just thanking them for a gift. It's a training and teaching session. He states, and the words that he uses are very interesting. They imply that he had acquired a special understanding of contentment, that he had been led to or discovered some hidden treasure. It's, a, it's an interesting word when he uses the word um, secret here. 
And we'll look at, look at verse 11 through 13. We'll look at the broader context in just a minute. I'm just going to read those two verses. And we will learn, by the way, that although it is no real secret what Paul is sharing, it is rare and few truly attain it. Verse 11 of chapter 4 of Philippians. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. He says, I have learned the secret of having abundance and suffering need, some key that leads to this elusive state of contentment. Why does he introduce it that way as a secret? Is it elusive? Why is it hard to grasp and to hold on to? Why is it a difficult path to find and choose? Inherently, you know the answer. Our natural man, our sinful nature, runs counter to contentment. You may be familiar with a proverb in uh, Proverbs 30 written by Agur. It's quoted oft times. He says in a prayer, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion so that I will not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And that I will not become impoverished and hungry and steal and profane the name of my God. When our apportioned lot is very little, our natural man wrestles with covetousness, jealousy, bitterness, tough circumstances, blame. It's not my fault. Even temptations to steal and immorality to get what I do not have. When blessed with an abundance, our natural proclivity is to seek security in those things, right? And the things that the money might afford, the leisure, the entertainment, the relationships, the status, the power. And we subtly will drift into a mindset that somehow we have secured this affluence, this wealth, this position. And we pridefully forget the creator God who made us and the judge to whom we will one day give an account. Hence the prayer of the proverb, to have neither, so I'm not tempted in either direction. Paul's statement, though, that we just read is a bit different. This secret about contentment, he says, I have learned to be content whether I have much, prosperous, or whether I am impoverished. It seems to be a a different angle on the proverb, and I would suggest that as we look at it, Instead of focusing on the natural tendencies of the flesh, which is what the proverb acknowledged, Paul gives us a substitute view, maybe a New Testament view of our prosperity, of our, in whatever the state may be. 
And I think as we begin to look, we're going to look at a near context in, the, in chapter 4, then we're going to flip to chapter 1 and look at two different contexts that Paul uses both to teach and to demonstrate this attitude that he claims is a secret that he has attained. True contentment means living without frustration, regret, bitterness, anxiety, anger, means laying my head down on my pillow at night in peace and at peace. What I'd like to do is try to look at the text and work together at uncovering what is it that we need to do to walk this path, to gain this secret that Paul says. Many of you know that the book of Philippians has been entitled, in most places, it's a book of joy. And sure enough, all you've got to do is look at the text and count the words, and you'll find out that either joy or its kinship word rejoice is used over 16 times throughout four chapters. So it's all throughout it. What I would suggest is that contentment and joy are twin sisters that live under the same roof. You won't find them separate. Where there is godly contentment, there is joy. Where there is joy, there will be godly contentment, biblically speaking. So we won't worry about whether the book's about joy or contentment. We'll leave the titling to others. But understand that the concepts are both understandably and integrally connected. Godly joy and contentment. There are typically two troubling springs that rise up or bubble up that trip us up and stir up our discontentment and test our contentment. It's our circumstances and the people around us. Life is full of surprises. Problem is not all of them are wrapped in pretty paper with a bow. If you were to tell me early in the morning when I got to bed, hey, today's got some surprises in store, I'm not sure I would welcome it yet because not all surprises are welcome, especially for those who like to order their day. Surprises are not oftentimes welcome. Paul lists several principles in both his teaching and his demonstration that will help us yield true peace and contentment. I want to look at those. So follow along. I'm going to read in the same text we were just looking at, but a little broader. I'm going to read from 10 to the end to chapter 20. Follow along as I read chapter 4 of Philippians 10 to 20. And you'll see that it's, it's the acknowledgement of a gift with teaching tucked within. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. Not that I speak from need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my difficulty. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. 
Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he ends his letter. Paul here in this letter acknowledges the monetary gift that the church at Philippi had recently sent by one of their own, Epaphroditus. He states that he understands that the Philippians' ability to give to him had been hindered. As I mentioned, it had been 10 years since he had founded the church at least, 10 to 11. And in the first couple of years after he left, they sent gifts to him in Athens, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, as we read. So there was a regular pattern, a habit that they were, had made of collecting gifts to supply for Paul's needs and the other travelers that were with Paul. But as time passed, the Philippians had ceased giving. Eight to nine years had passed. That's a long time. And the Philippians had, no, had not sent gifts to Paul. Maybe they couldn't track him down. But more likely, we know from a few other letters that during this time there was severe uh, famine and an impoverished state within the area of Macedonia, especially for Christians. So it's more, more likely that they did not, they were not able to give to Paul. We don't know, the scripture doesn't tell us, but whatever the cause, for about, we'll say eight to nine years, the Philippians had been unable to continue this pattern. And Paul now says, at last you have revived your concern for me. I find that interesting. The word revive paints a really neat picture. It's of a shrub, a flowering bush that annually in the springtime is beautiful, but for some reason, for several years, it has not bloomed, gone dormant. Now, all of a sudden, somewhere in the future, it begins to bloom again. That's the revived picture. As he, the Philippians had begun to offer a gift again. I think it's a neat picture because Paul sees it in relations to the heart and the faith of the Philippians, as he explains. His attitude, as he says, he knew that they continued to be concerned. I don't know how he knew that, but that they lacked opportunity. His attitude of graciousness reflects his patient trust in God's sovereignty and also his, the grace that he grants to the Philippians. He apparently did not allow himself to think, I wonder what's happened that the Philippians have stopped giving. They fell off the giving wagon. There was no self-pity apparently. They don't care for me anymore. No, eight years had gone by. Instead, he thought the best of the believers and expressed his confidence in their faith and their renewed demonstration of it. What a great testimony. Paul says, I'm really delighted that now at last you're giving to me again. Not that I need the money. I've learned the secret of having and not having. And then he spills out in verse 13, at least the source of the contentment. 
I can do all things through Jesus Christ. That was his source. He doesn't give us a lot of details here. We'll glance at them at the end of the message out of Philippians 3, the source that gave Paul the ability to be comfortable, to be relaxed, to be trusting with little or with abundance. So we'll look at that in a moment. Paul then explains what encourages him about the generosity of the Philippians is the demonstration of the growth of their faith and the profit to them spiritually as they exercise their own godly discipline. It's a sign of their sustained and growing faith. And after nine years, it had to be a tremendous joy and encouragement to him. And then with all confidence, he expresses his assurance that God will meet all of their needs in verse 19. Where does that confidence come from? Paul knew the word of God. He knew God himself, the history of God's provision for his people from millennial back through his own life as he trusted God with his life and that God had supplied everything for his life and godliness and was faithful time and time and time again. So the question for us is, in any and every circumstance, he says, I am content. Can you say that? Do the surprises that shake up your plans also shake up your contentment? Life certainly delivers surprises. We've seen a lot recently. It can be physical, it can be relational, it can be monetary, jobs, school. Well, take just a moment, let's define contentment. We'll look at what Webster says, but then biblically, I'm going to give you a biblical definition of how I would define contentment. Webster says it's the feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. Okay. Biblically, I would say it's trusting God and His providence over the events of my life. Someone years ago painted a neat word picture for me. Uh, my wife will remember who it was, but um, it's picture a hand. It's the hand of God. And, and I'm a stick figure somewhere down here, okay? And everything that comes into my life comes through the fingers of a caring and loving Father. Whatever it is, it's made it through those fingers. It's been filtered through His fingers before I ever see it. That picture, and, and by the way, our tests, our trials, our sufferings are not just filtered, okay, I know that they're there. This is a God who is the creator, the designer. The test is designed specifically for you and for me. There is no waste in it. If I respond, God's purposes are for me and for his glory. That's hard to, because some of the surprises are not mild, they're severe. I read a Spurgeon quote that speaks of this this week. Our Lord in his infinite wisdom and superabundant love sets such a high value on his people's faith that he will not protect them from those trials by which faith is strengthened. You would never have possessed the precious faith that now supports you if the trial of your faith had not been put through the fire. That's amazing. 
Because as a parent, those of you who are parents, if you're in this position of what hits your children, some you don't control, some you do, you're going to protect them. God chooses that our faith is more valuable to grow and protect than our comfort. That's heavy to get my arms around and to believe on a day-by-day basis with my circumstances. Because I am his child, because you are his children, God has seen and providentially sanctioned every situation for his glory and your ultimate goal, uh, your ultimate good. Ours is to believe and trust in that. So back up if you would, turn back to chapter one of Philippians, a few pages back. I wanna take another look at how Paul demonstrated this contentment, if you would. Chapter one of Philippians. We're gonna look, begin, I'm gonna begin reading in verse 12 through 18. It's almost shocking if you, if you understand Paul's situation, what he says several, about several situations in this passage. I'm sure you will pick them up. I want you to know, brothers, verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to add affliction to in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So to grasp the significance of the passage, you know and have a sense of this man, Paul. A tradition of Jewishness and Israelite training from Gamaliel up through, headed, became a rabbi, prominent, attended to the law more than most, walked in every way he could see, blameless according to the law. And having been changed, he's just as driven, but now driven in the message that God gave him. And he was all over. Obviously, you know his travels over decades. Well, here he was in house imprisonment in Rome, prevented from traveling, prevented from visiting any of the churches he had founded, teaching very little in person other than Timothy was with him and Luke, we believe, and a few others. Couldn't encourage the elders in Ephesus face-to-face, and a letter's going to take months to get there, several weeks for sure. Couldn't see any of the believers in Ephesus or Corinth or Philippi or Thessalonica or Colossae or the ones in Athens or in Jerusalem. He'd be given a job to do, a task to complete, driven to accomplish it. My thinking goes different than Paul's. Imprisonment? Really? 
How does that fit into the plan? You're the primary ambassador of Christ to the Gentiles, taking the gospel to the entire non-Jewish known world. Is God really in control? What about your mission, Paul? What about getting the word out? This is bound to hinder the spread of the gospel. Verse 12 and 13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of, the, of that my imprisonment is for Christ. Come on, Paul, who's really winning the battle? It's got to discourage the saints to see you in prison. Again, you're the primary spokesman for the Gentiles, to the Gentiles on behalf of Christ. And now you're imprisoned under house arrest. Won't others be, who are being persecuted be, get discouraged? Won't some even refuse to speak out in fear that they would be arrested and imprisoned? Verse 14, and that most of the brothers and sisters trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Okay, okay, Paul, I see. But what about those believers who don't even like you? In fact, they want to hurt you. They envy your success. They want to hurt you, detract from your ministry. And these are believers. You can't very well counter them in jail. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfishness, selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking that they're causing me more distress. What then? I rejoice, because whether it's in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. The impure motives of the other believers was acknowledged. Paul didn't deny that they had bad motives, but his focus was on something entirely different, that even in the midst of bad motives of people who are free and I'm imprisoned, is under the fingers of God. I couldn't help but think of Joseph at the end of Genesis 50, when his brothers came back and he was, he was in charge. Brothers scared to death to face him. And with really concise words, Joseph expresses this very deep truth. As for you, brothers, you meant it evil against me. That was your motive. You wanted to hurt me. You wanted to kill me, some of you. But God meant it for good. That those could coexist takes our mind and twists it. If I have a poor, ungodly response to circumstances, it will blind me to what God is doing. Paul is living life and training by example here, demonstrating a unique outlook, a God-centered mindset only gained in the economy of God. He's not denying the truth of imprisonment. He's not pretending he's not in difficulty. It's not a shallow mind game. Paul is directly applying the truths of Scripture that he knows, learned, practiced, and teaches. 
It's a profoundly theological perspective and lesson that Paul learned from the master. In the garden, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Paul taught believers to be give thanks in all things. He didn't say I have to have a heart that's just bubbling with thanksgiving. He said give thanks in all things. I can control that. I can look at a perspective, at a circumstance, and find things to be thankful for if I choose to. Or I can let my emotions take over. I can let my mind sink. I can say, poor me. I can compare myself to others. I can blame God or blame others. We have a choice. The reason it's a secret is not because it's hidden somewhere. It's because it's a difficult path to choose. Paul is practicing what he preaches. Every circumstance, any circumstance, every person who treats me badly, he's walking the talk. It's this practice and this outlook that will allow us to lay our head on our pillow at night and rest, leaving whatever it is to our Father who knows more and cares more than we do. He's looking at life and his circumstances through the glasses that only God gave him. The results of the mission are not Paul's to guarantee. He must only be faithful and obedient. God will take care of the rest. One side note, this is not a one and done. You know it experientially. Often trials and tests, I will commit my way to the Lord. I will say I trust him and I do. And temptation will come right back in. And I've got to do it again and again and again. Maybe moment by moment, maybe hour by hour, maybe day by day. I heard somebody describe lordship kind of this way. That lordship, the, the concept that I am bowed my will to the Father's is one big yes. Yes, Lord, I'm yours. You have all I am, all I do, all I want to be. But it's a whole bunch of, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Each day that I wake up, lordship needs to be refreshed. One big yes and a whole bunch of uh-huhs. And he cares enough to take me through that. Lastly, the source. What, what is it that is Paul's source? He already told us it's, he can do all things through Jesus Christ. But more specifically, he doesn't give us much detail. You have three arch enemies. I've used that term before. I didn't know what arch meant, really. So I looked it up. An arch enemy is a cunning, arrogant, malicious enemy. And you have three in your walk with the Lord and in your spiritual life. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You don't control the devil. You don't control the world. You control yourself. John, 1 John 2 tells us, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. 
The flesh, 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Peter also tells us a couple chapters later to be of sober spirit and on the alert because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion wanting to cause you to stumble. No, it says seeking someone to devour. He doesn't desire just to trip you up. He wants to set you on the sidelines permanently for God. The appeal of Satan in the garden has not changed. Surely God doesn't mean what he says. And then he'll twist his words, appealing to the desires of the flesh, with the world echoing in all of his lure. There is only one way to defeat this trio, but it is costly. Turn to Philippians 3. This gets to the source. Excuse me. I mentioned Paul's credentials, his worthy heritage as an Israelite man. He lists those in great detail. And to the average Jew, this would be insurmountable level of credentials. He was a man of man's, a Hebrew of Hebrews, knew the law, taught by the best. I mean, it was up there. And God took him to a different level. Verse 7 and 8, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then down to 12 through 14, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We know it from Jesus. We must seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all other things. They will be added in his time and his way. We must abide in Christ because without him we can do nothing. If you are not content, if you lay your head on your pillow and are not able to rest, if you've never experienced the peace with God that leads to this. The only answer is to bow to Christ as King and Lord, and as Savior and as King and Lord in that. You can know God as your Savior and Lord, and it is the only path to true peace, joy, and contentment. That that Paul had only came as he let go of his own will, desires, beliefs, and, and accepted and bowed before the Creator and Jesus as Lord. Contentment is no secret. However, it's a difficult choice. It demands a sacrifice of my will, a sacrifice of my desires, my timing, my plans to Him. 
once and ongoing. Let's pray. Lord, having enjoyed together celebrating the Lord's Supper and examining ourselves, our goal is that you would find us not harboring sin, not clinging to our own way. Lord, our grasp can be strong and it is hard to let go. Would you do the things to pry open our hands that we would trust you and not try to reclaim them and regrab them? Lord, we desire your contentment. We desire your peace. You know the flesh. We have a high priest that understands our infirmities and our weaknesses, and yet you walked sinless. Lord, by the strength of your spirit within, the teaching and the truths of scripture, the fellowship of the saints, would you grow us in accepting circumstances and things that we don't have control of and try to see what it is that you have designed in the trials and tests that we need. Help us to not be grumbling and complainers, which is so easy but rather to be thankful. Think on things that are true and just and pure and lovely, things of good report. Lord, we let our requests be made known to you that your peace might guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.